the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigee and Technologies. Today, we're talking with our friend and colleague, Emily Roth. I first met Emily at the second naturalistic decision-making meeting in Dayton, Ohio in 1994, but she had been studying how people manage complexity long before that meeting. In fact, I remember at that meeting thinking, I want to be like her. Emily is one of the people that inspired me to think I really could be a scientist, and I know Emily's inspired many others over the course of her career. She is one of the architects of the cognitive systems engineering movement. She had an important role in redesigning nuclear power plant control rooms in the wake of Three Mile Island, and that was just the beginning. Her contributions have been felt far and wide. She now lives in Palo Alto, California, where she runs Roth Cognitive Engineering. So Emily, thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you, looking forward. Good, so I'm going to start by going back to the very beginning of your career. And I'm wondering if you can remember the first paper you ever published and tell us something about that. Oh, sure. Uh, so uh, that was when I was back in graduate school in the uh, mid 70s. Uh, and I was really studying to be a, um, a, an, an academic, uh, a, uh, a cognitive psychologist. And I was interested in uh, reasoning and language, but but in in very sort of controlled and, and pure science uh, ways. Uh, and so the, the study, uh, my first study that I published was my master's. And uh, it's an interesting study because it, it both reveals my experimental psychology controlled laboratory sort of roots on the one hand, but also my lasting interest in focusing on what makes people competent and, and uh, allows them to um, reveal their competence and their ability to, to problem solve rather than focusing on biases and errors. Um, and, and it also, I think, reveals my early interest in not only relying on objective performance, you know, response time and error rates, but also thinking about people's explanations, you know, pr verbal protocols of why they did what they did. Um, and so this was a, a very sort of um, a, an abstract reasoning task that was well known to cause people to make errors, even you know academics and engineers and uh, PhD scientists. Uh, and that's the, the called the four card problem. And the, the idea is you tell people, okay, I've got these four cards, and they have a number on one side and a letter on the other side. And I'm going to show you the four cards. And I'm going to give you a rule. And let's say the rule is if there's a two on one side, then there's an A on the other side. So we know there's a number on one side and a letter on the other. And so I show you four cards and the cards have a two, a B, an A, and a three. And um, what you're asked is uh, what cards would you need to turn over to figure out whether this rule is true or not? Well, most people are drawn to come up with a very quick answer that seems obviously correct, but is wrong. So people say, oh, um, you should choose the two because you want to make sure that 
um, there's uh, an A on the other side, and, and they're right about that. Uh, but then they say, um, and you should choose uh, the A. Uh, but in fact, what you should do is you should choose the two, but, but you should choose the B. And, and the reason for that is that uh, you choose the two because you want to make sure there's an A on the other side, uh, but you choose the B to make sure there isn't a two on the other side, right? So the, there was a two and a B, then the rule, if there's a two, then, then, then there's an A would not be right. Um, and uh, we already knew from uh, prior studies that people are bad at this task. And, and the question I asked, pose myself is, what can you do to make people understand more quickly what the right answer is? Um, and one solution I came up with was, uh, what if you block the incorrect answer? You know, if you make it impossible for them to give you the answer that's not right, it might cause them to step back and think about it harder. And, and that's in fact what we did. So we, we would give them the rule, if there's a two on one side, then there's an A on the other side. Um, but then we wouldn't give them, uh, then we'd give them three cards, let's say, uh, not four. We wouldn't give them the two. They, what they'd see is uh, an A, a B, and a three. And so they couldn't um, give the obvious answer that would just jump out at them. They had to think about it a little bit. And sure enough, when you do that, people are much more likely to say, oh, yeah, you have to check the B, because if you turn the B around and there's um, a two, then, then you know the rule is wrong. Um, in today's parlance, uh, that uh, people talk about that is using system one versus system two. So, so the idea is uh, system one is quick and intuitive, but can sometimes be misled. And system two is, is slower and allows you to think things through. Um, and I think in, in this kind of study, the, the point was how do you uh, get people to more naturally uh, realize that they need to use system two? Um, and so as I say, the I think the study both uh, reflected the fact that you know, I was doing these very controlled laboratory studies uh, with P levels, et cetera, uh, but that I was also interested in, in people's confidence and in what uh, allows them to, to manifest it. You know, it's in there. It's just uh, them showing it. So I, didn't, I did not know this about you. This is so interesting. Even when you were doing your master's degree, you were exploring ways to kind of support performance so people do better. Yeah, I didn't think about it that way at the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> wow, but that kind of foretold much of the emphasis of your career. That's, that's really cool. Um, so, okay, so next question. I'm wondering if, um, so you started out in experimental psychology and were interested in more basic research kind of questions. I'm wondering if you can think of a time or an event or kind of how your career took a turn and you started moving into more uh, naturalistic kinds okay. of studies. So, so some of it is I've got to uh, pull back a little bit and, and maybe just uh, talk per about my personally um, what shifted uh, my direction. Some of it was, was really happenstance. And uh, you know, I, I uh, got married to my husband, Al Roth, and we were at the University of Illinois. He was a uh, a faculty member in the economics department and business school, and I was a graduate student in psychology uh, at the University of Illinois. Um, when I graduated, we needed two jobs, and um, it, it was a time when it was very hard uh, to ha get econo um, uh, academic jobs in psychology. 
and two jobs that made it particularly hard. So we both took a very scary leap. Um, Al uh, had an opportunity to take a position at the University of Pittsburgh, and we, we knew nothing about Pittsburgh. And uh, uh, I uh, didn't have a job uh, when when we uh, arrived in Pittsburgh, but I you know uh, applied uh, broadly, and uh, I. Uh, was just very lucky. The first day I arrived uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, we went to Al's office, and there was a letter for me from uh, Lou Haynes at uh, Westinghouse Science and Technology in out in Pittsburgh, uh, offering me an interview. And uh, I ended up, you know, maybe long story. I, I ended up uh, working at Westinghouse, and and so um, when I got to Westinghouse. I was um, challenged with very exciting problems, but these were not problems that were amenable to address using traditional experimental design and statistical tools. Uh, so a specific example is um, uh, nuclear power plant operators, uh, Westinghouse built nuclear power plants, um, often had trouble during startups, starting up the plant. and. Uh, they would make errors that would lead to plant trips. But there were some expert operators that uh, the plants would always rely on to start up the plant error-free and, and to do a good job. And so um, our customer came to us and said, gee, could you figure out how these experts do the task? And we would build an expert system to do the task exactly how they did it. Um, so, so this is a question that, that is more exploratory. It's about the basis of expertise. And uh, it seemed natural uh, to, to go back to first principles about how you do exploratory uh, kinds of studies. And uh, we coupled uh, incident analysis, critical incident analysis. We asked operators who were really good at the task to give us examples of uh, times things went well and times things didn't go well. And we also were lucky we had a simulator. We could bring them into the simulator and observe them uh, perform and observe them um, talk in the context uh, of, of actual performance about what it was they did. Uh, and that was a much more uh, meaningful way to understand performance. It, it, it wouldn't have made any sense to try to, you could have, <laughs> try to bring the task into a lab environment, but, but you wouldn't have gotten to the pragmatic expertise. Uh, and, and a crystal example that comes to mind is in the simulator, um, we had operators and they were having fun with each other and, and one was at the reactor side and one was at the secondary side and they said, oh, oh we're gonna demonstrate to you how this works. Uh, and they said, two shrinks is equal to a swell. Uh, and, and, and that was to indicate that uh, they understood the dynamics of the startup and the dynamics of how uh, water uh, worked, uh, feed water worked during the startup, and that uh, you needed to compensate for uh, shrinks that arise when putting in cold water by doing other things that, that might create a swell, that, that might create expansion. Uh, and so that kind of expertise was best uh, understood through observations and interviews and best um, uh, dealt with through 
better training and better displays rather than trying to build an expert system to replace the performance. So I'm curious, um, uh, did, did, um, was there an expectation that you would do more experimental sorts of things and, and, and you had to kind of find your way to these other methods or, or were you already familiar with interview strategies and, and observation and that sort so, of thing? So um, I'm trying to think because, uh, you know, uh, I did come from Pittsburgh and, I, and I, I know you spend time in Pittsburgh as well. And that was, um, I, mean, I, I was in uh, Pittsburgh for, um, um, at Westinghouse. Um, and that was the time when Herb Simon was doing a lot of protocol analysis and the kinds of studies. And so it was in the air. Uh, and I think, uh, yeah, the, the, I think there was starting to be understanding about uh, careful observations and, and verbal protocols and critical incident. Um, and of course, uh, it was also a time when we were uncovering uh, some of our close colleagues who were simultaneously, I think, in, you know, inventing uh, tools and methods uh, like Gary Klein and, and Robert Hoffman. Nice. So one more follow-up about that. So they, they, the question they 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 posed was, can you create an expert system that will be able to do what these um, really experienced humans can do? How did that work out? What, 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 <laughs> so you know, I think we um, through so so this was work done in collaboration with Dave Woods and uh, and actually some some um, control theory guys as well. Uh, John Gallagher was involved. Uh, and um, we actually use multiple approaches. We, we actually uh, created uh, visualizations that allowed people to perform the task in better ways. So I think among the things that we learned from this is, is sure, you know, we could have built an expert system that, that told um, uh, uh, the operator, okay, if you're in this situation, you know, two, uh, shrinks equals a swell, so uh, tap twice on uh, the feed water and then at the same time increase reactor level by a certain amount. You could try to do that, but that's sort of like trying to teach someone to, to drive a car by saying to them, you know, move the steering wheel to the right three times, then move the th steering wheel to the left two times. It's just not, not, doesn't make any sense. So instead, what we did was reimagine the task, uh, create new visualizations that allowed people to see directly um, how to do the task smoothly. So they didn't have to memorize these um, strategies for making visible what was invisible. We, we actually created visualizations that allowed them to, to do the task more smoothly. Wow. Yeah. So. Um, you're saying this in such a matter-of-fact way, but I happen to know this was really groundbreaking breaking work that uh, that um, wasn't what people were expecting. That wasn't the outcome people were expecting, and it was a really uh, powerful and impactful outcome. So that's a really cool, cool, cool story, cool experience. So Emily, you're also using these terms, shrinks and swells and feed water, as if the rest of us know what that stuff is. Um, sure, sorry. I, I, I will say actually that I do know what some of that stuff is. I, I, I also had a Westinghouse project around uh, 2010, went on for about three years in more of a knowledge management aspect. Yeah. So some of these folks that you may very well have worked with uh, nearing the end of their career in Westinghouse 
at the time uh, was going through a bit of a resurgence uh, with uh, new plants in, uh, in the U.S. and China. Uh, and so they were really interested in, in how can we get some of that expertise uh, out of the heads of folks who are going to be leaving uh, and into the heads of all these fresh-faced engineers. Um, and so that was uh, my sort of experience with Westinghouse. But I, I, I'm, as you're mentioning these terms, I'm sort of thinking back and, and remembering how challenging it was in that project to simultaneously try to execute um, cognitive task analysis methods and start to understand how a nuclear power plant works. Right, so 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 that domain is incredibly complex, and so I'm wondering. I have a general question, sort of about you know barriers in terms of things that you've had to overcome uh, that might have been more difficult than you expected in your career. But I'm specifically interested in in your very earliest days there at Westinghouse as you're trying to understand what this whole domain is about. Did you did you feel that that was a particular challenge in just trying to understand you know the the ins and outs of a nuclear power plant? You know, um, absolutely. You know, there was a, 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 a serious learning curve. On the other hand, I was very lucky to be working as part of teams that, that brought that expertise to bear. So, so again, early in, in, in my career when I um, uh, arrived at Westinghouse, Dave Woods was already there, and he already had started uh, along these lines of, of research. And uh, we had... Um, we aligned ourselves with um, engineers from the nuclear energy group, uh, including Bill Elm and John Gallagher and Jim Easter, who were very patient in explaining to us um, uh, nuclear power plant operations. And in turn, we could uh, you know, translate that into you know, psychological notions of people having wrong mental models or how you could bring visualizations to, uh, bring it, to, to make clearer what was going on under, in the dynamic process. Um, but the other thing uh, that it raises is um, the, uh, another sort of core um, uh, formative element for me when I hit Westinghouse was the emphasis on, on really understanding the domain and what makes it hard. Uh, and so we, we, we did work very closely with people like John uh, Gallagher and Bill Elm to develop uh, work domain analyses, you know, to sort of understand the dynamics of these processes and, and what parameters were being controlled and, and what information was available about those parameters in the control room. And, and the answer is not enough. The information wasn't available because at low levels, the sensors didn't provide sufficient guidance. Um, so um, we, we needed to simultaneously use what we call cognitive work analysis, domain analysis, to really come up with a map of what information you really do need to, to solve these problems. Um, together with the, the psychology, understanding people's mental models, their strategies, and, and what allows them to perform successfully. So the tools were, were helpful as well as the other people were helpful in sort of overcoming that particular barrier. I'm wondering if, if, if as you think back over your career, are there other barriers that um, you uh, experienced that were more difficult to overcome than you might have expected? 
You know, um, I, I'm thinking hard about that question, and and ironically, um, I feel very lucky in my career um, in that uh, one. I mean, I was a, a young female psychologist uh, in a in a world uh, that mostly I was dealing with uh, male engineers, and you could imagine that. Um, I would have difficulty both because of my gender or, and because, you know, I, I, I'm a sort of soft, uh, more soft qual rather than a quant, right? Um, but in fact, I, I uh, didn't, I, maybe I uh, didn't know to expect it, but, but I, I, I didn't experience that at all. Uh, when I hit Westinghouse, uh, they were very supportive people that, that helped me advance through the system, uh, like Dave Woods and uh, my boss, Lou Haynes, who's an amazing boss. And there were engineers that, that respected the knowledge I was bringing to bear for, with respect to psychology and human-computer interaction. And they were quite thirsty for that kind of knowledge. Um, and, and so it, it definitely felt collaborative that, that they were teaching me nuclear power. And, and I was uh, you know, explaining to them about uh, natural language understanding and uh, mental models and uh, how you need to observe people as well as uh, have them talk through things. So, so it was, I think there was mutual respect. Yeah, that's great. I, I, I can think of a similar um, sort of perspective as I was at Westinghouse, and, and that's kind of built into their culture, right, with their, their consulting engineer levels, you know, folks who have a lot of experience there are expected to be mentors and expected to sort of guide people. So it's a really interesting yeah. sort of organizational culture to be involved in. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree. And I actually, uh, I haven't experienced many other corporate mm. environments. So I, you know, I, I don't know how different they were, but, but uh, you know, Westinghouse at that time, and especially Westinghouse nuclear power folks, we're, we're just, you know, amazing people, just the way you said. What a, what a great start, a great first job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> great. <laughs> okay, so I want to switch gears a little bit. I know you have worked with the railways, and trains certainly have, you know, some romance to, to a lot of people, but to a passenger, um, driving a train seems pretty straightforward. Um, so I wondered if you could tell us about some of the interesting insights you've learned working with railway engineers and conductors and, and those sorts of folks. Yep. Uh, no, that's been a, a, a fun strand of research uh, as well. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things for me early on when I started to work in the railroad industry relative to the nuclear industry is that in the nuclear industry, people spent a lot of time um, concerned about risk and concerned about safety. But, but in fact, while uh, you know there's low probability risks that we're trying to manage uh, of uh, you know a, 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 a core meltdown um, and accidents, uh, there really are very few fatalities, very few uh, accidents or, or, or people getting hurt. Um, whereas in railroads, that's much less the case. So uh, roadway workers are, are constantly at, at, at risk, um, including at risk of being hit by uh, trains, especially if the trains aren't 
uh, they're not looking, you know, they're looking down at the rail and they weren't expecting a train, the train wasn't supposed to be coming by at that time or in that direction, um, it, it, people can get hurt. And so um, one of the things that we uh, observed uh, both through our interviews, but, but more importantly, actually through actual observation, you're actually riding on trains and, and, and riding on um, rail cars with um, roadway workers, is that everyone is spent, spends a lot of time um, worrying about each other and giving each other heads up to avoid these kinds of unexpected situations that, that might um, create problems. So um, dispatchers, will, whose job it is to you know, route trains and, and assign roadway workers to work in in areas, will uh, alert roadway workers if a train, if they're going to be scheduling a train that they hadn't otherwise anticipated. And if a, a train um, comes by and sees a train going in the other direction and had just seen some roadway workers earlier, he'll call the roadway workers on the radio and alert them that the train is coming and, and alert the, the, tr the other train that there are roadway workers on the, on the track. And these are not formal processes. They're not trained to do this. They're not uh, formally expected to do this. Um, and when you point out that they're doing this, um, they would say to me, oh, uh, these are courtesies. You know, the, the, the term they use for, for this kind of behavior is, is their courtesies. But in fact, what they are is informal strategies that aren't documented, but that are um, promulgated throughout the organization that increase um, the resilience of the organization, increase safety, and um, you know, increase productivity as well. Uh, so, so I think that that the that collaborative nature and that emergent behavior was was one of the striking things I learned in that industry. That is so interesting. That uh, so it sounds like some of the things that make that organization resilient are um, are completely not part of procedures in any way. This is they're they're, they're thinking of them as courtesies. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. and it, I'm sorry, and I was going to say even the, the the use of that language to signal that I don't really have to do this. I'm not being asked to do this, but but it's an important thing to do. Yeah. So how do you, how does an organization support that kind of uh, behavior? Right. So I you know um, I think this is an interesting question because as I uh, you know I, I want to say it's almost not it's not a question. This has been sufficiently pursued because uh, what I think what is interesting to me is that um, since it isn't taught, you know, it isn't formally covered in, in courses, the question is how does it promulgate through the system and how does it continue to be supported? Um, and frankly, as, um, as a workload increases, these strategies may be some of the first ones that are vulnerable because they are discretionary. So um, one of the conclusions we drew from our work is, is the importance of, you know, documenting these strategies and highlighting their importance so that uh, they are either directly supported or if they can't be directly supported, then, then you create, you know, uh, you, you provide the same service in another way, you know, maybe automatic alerts or uh, messages or 
but but uh, yeah. Yeah, so this is such an important insight. So these these informal things that increase the safety of the system are likely to be things that are shed when workload yeah. gets too high. Yeah. And so just uncovering those kind of almost invisible things that make such a big difference and bring them to people's attention um, feels like such an important contribution there. Yeah. It, it was certainly interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, what we've been kind of reflecting a lot, if we if we kind of think about um, current days and looking forward, what are some of the NDM related research directions that you're most excited about now? Okay, so, um, you know, I, I think what's most impressive to me about NDM right now is how healthy it is and how accepted it is across a variety of domains. You know, there was recently the NDM conference uh, out here uh, in San Francisco, and there's the uh, book that was published, just published, the Oxford Handbook of Expertise, that, that really showcases all the different areas that um, NDM uh, uh, is actively involved in. So healthcare, sports, cybersecurity, you name it. Uh, people understand the value of understanding you know, decision-making in the real world and, and, and trying to you know, document it and support it. Um, so, so that's one thing that I think is exciting. But uh, another thing that, that I think um, is an interesting new challenge that, that Laura, um, you and I have, have had uh, the opportunity to work on is to apply NDM techniques, um, you know, the critical decision interview method, um, among others, to uh, try and inform the envisioned world. Um, so there are lots of uh, new systems that are being developed, uh, uh, you know, all the way from um, self-driving cars to uh, aircraft that, that, that are used almost as taxis, to envisioned um, unmanned vehicles of various sorts, and we, we don't have a handle on how people are going to operate in this new world, this envisioned world. Um, and so um, you and I and the ADS team had an opportunity to, to um, uh, face that challenge uh, head on in the context of trying to think about um, the a, a world in which uh, a new kind of helicopter a, a next generation uh, army helicopter uh, is likely to operate where both the world is um, likely to, to be more dangerous uh, with uh, enemies that are near peer uh, but but also the likelihood that there's much more automation uh, a variety of uas that are operating on their um, on their own and, and intelligently. And, and, and the question is, uh, what's the role of the human in, in those situations and uh, what's likely to be challenging? And uh, so, so we had the opportunity to see how we can use NDM techniques to support an understanding of the envisioned world. And uh, uh, you know, we, uh, our work there involved uh, trying to study surrogate organizations. You know, we, we, we don't know 
the the the, the details of how a pilot is is going to deal with um, you know next generation helicopters because they're not built yet and, and the world doesn't exist. But but there are some analogs that can help us understand the likely challenges and extrapolate the challenges. And so um, we did that. We interviewed Kiowa operators and Apache operators and and, and other kinds of specialists to um, get a chance to understand both what's what's already hard in the world, in today's world, what's likely to be harder, and, and what kind of knowledge and expertise humans bring to the party that we want to make sure is preserved in the envisioned world. So, so uh, there are some things that we know are going to be challenging for automation um, that, that people do well today and that are likely to be needed in the future as well. Uh, and uh, using NDM techniques to get at that is, is, I think, turned out to be quite valuable. Yeah, that was a, that's been great, great work. And it's been really fun to work together on it. Um, I wanted to just kind of reflect on your response. Um, you started out saying that NDM is healthy and accepted. And I, I'm thinking even over the course of my career, I feel like when I started out, we were thinking, uh, there were lots of questions about whether cognitive task analysis is a legitimate method in interviews and observations, does that really count? And, and if you fast forward to this project we just worked on, no one was asking those kind of questions. We were asking how can we combine cognitive task analysis and work domain analysis and imprint modeling and all these, um, all these different kinds of tools, how can we kind of adapt them and leverage them and combine them in interesting ways to ask the, to answer these novel novel questions. So so the NDM community really has come a long way. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. So Emily, you've been very generous with uh, with your work over the years and mentoring lots of folks and and I think lots of folks know a bit about you uh, and certainly through your work. But I'm wondering, is there anything, uh, Let's, let's give you two things. Tell us two things about you that the audience probably doesn't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, okay, let's see. So, um, you know, uh, so the, I, I think things that are outside of my, you know, sort of pers professional persona uh, that, that are valuable and, and, and important to me. Um, one of them, I think, is um, how uh, I, I really love to entertain, and I really love to cook and uh, to, to cook for uh, for for lots of guests, and uh, that turned out to be uh, I think a, a very rewarding aspect of my life, uh, in that uh, it helps to bring a sense of community to to people around um, me, and I you know I don't necessarily cook fancy, but but uh, uh, bringing people together uh, has turned out to, to be important for me, and, and, and people have given me feedback that, that it's, it's helped, um, you know, help, help them uh, be part of the, the community. So, so that's a, a part of uh, my uh, self, sense of self uh, that, that may be a little different. Um, and then the other part, uh, I suppose another thing that, that, that people may not fully know about me, is that while I uh, champion uh, qualitative methods and observations and interviews, my family, I'm surrounded by quants. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
uh, you know, my husband is uh, an, an economist that uses mathematical tools. Um, my older son, Aaron, is a computer scientist that uses mathematical tools. Um, my younger son, Ben, is is an econ a different kind of economist. He's a development economist. He's interested in um, uh, un uh, how to uh, support people in in countries that are uh, uh, poorer. Uh, but he also brings mathematical tools uh, to bear. And their wives are all quads. So my uh, Aaron's wife, Kathy, is a, uh, a PhD mathematician who, who works as a, a software engineer. And uh, my other daughter-in-law, Stephanie, is uh, a PhD economist uh, who works at a startup, but in very mathematical ways. Uh, but we all, you know, all respect each other, and I think that all the work is exciting. And so you can use the food to avoid those debates at the dinner table. Is that the plan? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Good strategy. Yeah. Yeah, and as someone who has been lucky enough to, to be at some of your dinner parties, um, they are fun, and you do do such a nice job of bringing together scientists and physicians and, you know, just all kinds of people who have, uh, who can learn from each other and, and just enjoy a really nice casual meal. So, yeah. And vice versa. I remember nice gatherings at your own place. Thanks. Uh, so I think, um, the, the last question here on the list is I'm wondering if you, um, if, you could tell us about two or three books, maybe outside of the NDM literature that have influenced your thinking. Okay, uh, sure. So um, I think there was, there's one book uh, that particularly uh, influenced my thinking and, and also reassured me <laughs> uh, relative to our own work as human factors, scientists and and people struggling with design of systems for people, the design of first of a kind systems. Um, and that's a book that was written in 1982 uh, by an engineer um, that's called To Engineer as Human, The Role of Failure in Successful Design. And it was written by Henry Petrosky. Um, and, and he basically is a storyteller um, and he, um, tells many stories about how uh, really even engineering design is, is experimental and it's trial and error. And we, we think about, you know, we think that engineers have, uh, you know, straightforward formulas for how to uh, create something and, and, and you know, and they just do simple uh, math. Um, but, but that turns out to work better for well understood systems. You know, if you, if you, you know, already know how to build an elevator, then the next, you know, the second elevator and the third elevator um, are, are pretty routine and you, you can just apply uh, formulas and, and, and do okay. But when you're building the first of a kind, the first one, um, it, it, it's definitely an envisioning process. It's a trial and error process. And um, accidents happen before you finally um, develop robust systems that, that you could apply again and again. And, and uh, an example that he uses is suspension bridges. You know, there are now beautiful and robust suspension bridges like the 
um, you know, the, the iconic Brooklyn Bridge, um, that um, are, are wonderful and no one worries about them falling down. But the first suspension bridges that, that uh, were built over rivers uh, did fall down and, and it was a trial and error process. And so a little bit, I feel, you know, we shouldn't beat ourselves uh, for the fact that when, whenever we find ourselves designing a new system, we, we fall back on, uh, well, we're going to have to do an evaluation or you know, we'll need to put it in place and, and continue to get feedback on, on how well it's working and, and, and modify it. Um, that's just how uh, the design process of first-of-a-kind systems work. So that's one book. Um, and uh, I can give you a yeah, different book, yeah. which is very different. Yeah, I mean, the, the one you just mentioned, <laughs> um, I ha I'm not familiar with that one at all, but that sounds very interesting. And um, yeah, I, I definitely, yeah, that's one I think I, I recommend. It, it just uh, really stood out. Well, and it's me. such an important perspective uh, because often the sponsor is hoping you're going to get it right the first time and has an expectation that you'll be able to tell them exactly when it will be ready and right. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so this, the second book is, is really very different. Uh, and I, I just picked a, a recent book that, that, that sort of really uh, impressed me. I, I uh, really enjoy reading memoirs and, and stories about real people and their struggles and how they've overcome the struggles, and especially books about women. And uh, there's a recent book that was written in 2019 by Stephanie land, uh, which is very highly readable and, and uh, highly thought-provoking. And it's called Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and a Mother's Will to Survive. And it's really about um, her own experience um, and, and precariousness. Uh, she uh, had been planning to go on to college, but, but ran into financial troubles and, and uh, eventually became homeless, and she had a young child. And she took on, you know, many different kinds of jobs, um, and she eventually um, got herself on her feet and applied for and got financial support uh, to go to college. And, and so it was a, you know, a success story in that sense. But but it really brought home um, the precarious financial situations that people can find themselves in, and, and how they can very rapidly. Um, without any fault of their own, find themselves uh, homeless. And um, how hard it is to come up with the knowledge and, and maybe even more importantly, the time that you need to invest um, to get yourself out of those situations, uh, to obtain the governmental, governmental and non-governmental support you need to get back on your feet. And in her case, you know, she eventually figured out, and, and she describes in gory detail all the uh, paperwork that was involved in getting uh, financial support to go to college, uh, and how uphill struggle it was, uh, and how it, you know it required uh, concerted attention and considerable you know mental uh, workload uh, devoted to that, and which you you know uh, may not have the the luxury to have when you're in those kinds of situations. Wow. Yeah, I don't know that book either, but I, I definitely want to check it out. <laughs> Great. Okay, so the last part I have here, this is an associative thinking exercise. 
<laughs> so I am going to read a word and I'm going to ask you to just say the first thing that comes to mind. Um, your answer should be three words at la or less. And then when we get to the end of the list, if there are any you want to return to and give follow-up or more explanation, you, you can pick one. Okay? Okay. All right. You sure. ready? Okay. The first right. one is autonomy. Autonomy. Brittleness. Oh, no, 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 that's great. <laughs> okay. How about nuclear power? Robustness. Ah, okay. Working from home. Luxury. Especially. <laughs> <laughs> uh, scenario. Scenario. Fundamental. Expertise. Difficult to access. Okay. Trade-offs. <laughs> Can I use fundamental again? Sure. <laughs> Inherent. 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 Okay. Uh, collaboration. Critical. And table tennis. Ooh. Uh, uh, so important for family development. How's that? Great. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. Are there any you want to elaborate on? Uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe the the first one, automation, where I came back with brittleness, <laughs> and and that's a tough one because uh, autom you know, automation is important. It's, it's how we advance. You know, uh, uh, cars used to have manual transmission, and now it, it people only use manual transmission for sport, right? Because they enjoy it. Uh, and, and so automation is important and valuable, and it, it allows people to do more than um, they're able to, to they were able to do before. So, so it's a very positive thing. On the other hand, um, designers and engineers um, are, are classically overconfident, and that's why scenarios are important. You know, they uh, and and it, it's too easy to um, think about all, all the ways things can go right and, mm. and, and not enough about how things can go wrong. So that's where the engineer is human uh, was, was important to me. Uh, so uh, in our work, and I, I know Laura in your work as well, um, we think very hard about the role of the human in, in adding to the resilience of the system. So, so we're not anti-automation, but but we, we're trying to be cautious about how to introduce automation and how to make sure people can understand the automation and contribute to more resilient joint performance. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, Emily, for speaking with us today. Um, this has been really fun. Yeah, thank you. This has been fun. It was uh, nice to speak to you and Brian. So on that note, I want to thank you for joining us uh, for the NDM podcast. I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.